Hi, I'm Will Schwalbe, and this is But That's Another Story. I have a confession to make. Sometimes, when I'm reading a really great book, I can get a little carried away. A few summers ago, I was staying at a friend's beach house for the weekend and found myself beyond obsessed with a novel called As Meat Loves Salt by Maria McCann. I remember flipping page after page as my skin burnt to a crisp. I knew I should go in for more sunscreen, but I just couldn't stop reading. When I finished, I wandered around in a daze, almost unable to speak. I needed to give someone else this feeling, so I passed the book on to a friend who was also there that weekend. I told him to let me know if he loved it as much as I did. He didn't. The next time I saw him, he said he was 50 pages in, but didn't think he was going to read any further. The historic detail, the violence, passion, and gloom, everything I loved about it, he hated. Anyone who knows me knows how much I believe in freedom of expression. But even I have my limits, and talking trash about books I love is one of them. If I give you one of my favorite books and you hate it, that's fine. Just don't tell me about it. My favorite books are like my friends. If you don't like them, just don't hang out with them. But don't try to tell me why. And just for the record, he was totally wrong. Everyone else I recommend read it has loved it as much as I do. And recently, I got to talking about loving books that other people just don't get with today's guest. My name is Julie Bunton, and I'm the author of Marlena and the director of writing programs at Catapult. Marlena was published last year to rave reviews. It was Julie Bunton's first novel, and it tackles one of her favorite subjects, teenagehood. Marlena is the story of Kat, who moves to rural Michigan as a teenager and develops a friendship with Marlena, who lives just next door. The bond between the girls is intense and immediate, and so is the trouble they find themselves getting into. And while the book and characters are fictional, they share some biographical details with the author. I grew up in northern Michigan, about 20 minutes from the Mackinac Bridge, which connects the Lower Peninsula to the Upper Peninsula. Pretty small town with like a sex shop and a trout fishery and a bar and a church um, and really nothing else. I was also in band as a kid. I started playing the saxophone in fifth grade because my fifth grade teacher gave me hers and I went through the whole like band track. So yeah, I was pretty serious about that. I played the saxophone in marching band, pep band, and jazz band. That was like something that I really wanted to sort of take forward and then just let die (laughs) as I got (laughs) older. The saxophone. Yeah. Julie was a big reader from the time she was a little kid, but even early on, she had a little bit of a rebellious streak. My mom had a collection of books that were hidden in her closet in the bedroom, which were like sexy romances. Definitely read all of those, including the Clan of the Cave Bear books, which I must have read multiple times as like a a pre-adolescent. Those are those Uh, Gene Owl uh sagas. Yep, totally. Lots of very, very steamy. I was totally not allowed to read them. I definitely read them all. Um, And they're prehistoric, right? Yeah, they're actually like very historically rich stories (laughs) in addition to also being sexy. Uh, I remember too very vividly my mom had Angela's Ashes when that came out and it was like a huge book that everybody was reading. And I was definitely not allowed to read Angela's Ashes. So what I would do is whenever she left, I would just sneak it from where it was hidden and read like as much as I could read before she got home and then put it back very carefully and then take it back out and read a little bit more. When Julie wasn't reading, 
She was hanging out with her best friend, doing the kinds of things kids usually do. Making up imaginary games, playing outside, oh, and occasionally lighting things on fire. My friend went through this phase where she was really interested in lighting things on fire. And I have like very vivid memories of like sneaking out of her house during the day, like we were from like fifth or sixth graders, and sitting in her backyard and like lighting little sticks on fire and like trying to build these little fires. These kinds of like little ways of breaking the rules that we thought were really um, transgressive as small children. And I remember that really well. There was also this park near her house where we would sometimes go sometimes at night and we would like walk around this is in like late middle school but yeah I mean a lot of like talking about boys you know very normal like this sort of ephemera of teenage and adolescent girlhood was very true to my experience kind of moving out of middle school and into high school I definitely went through a period of rule breaking I would say um I made really close friends with a few girls who were a little bit like faster than my friends from middle school. Um, and that meant drinking and partying and skipping school, skipping band, which was like would always leave me in this very, you know, turbulent state because I sort of loved it. But I also realized it was very uncool to play the alto saxophone. Like that was a tough <laughs> realization in like ninth grade. And more and more, Julie found herself exploring beyond the band room. My bedroom window growing up opened right up onto land, basically. Like, there was no jumping out or anything like that. So if I wanted to leave at night, I could just open my window and walk out, which I did all the time. Really probably, like, more nights than I stayed at home. And when I look back on that kind of really wild period of time in my life where I really would have done... I would have done anything. Like, I I don't even want to get into all the things that I did. It's, like, it shames me to think about it. I would do anything. I had no sense of risk. I would totally... I didn't believe in consequences. I thought I was really brave, and I was sort of desperate for everything to feel really, like, big. You just said that um, you used the word shame to describe that period. Do you feel during the time, those years, you felt any shame, or is that something that's entirely in retrospect? I think I did. I think I did feel shame. I mean, I think it, you know, it's it's like a ball rolling down the hill. Like, when I started kind of acting out... Things that had never been true for me started becoming true. Like, I, my grades weren't as good. Um, my mom and I were always fighting. My siblings were – I wasn't getting along with my siblings. I didn't really feel connected to my old friends. And as those things got worse, like, your connection to trying to fix them gets – it sort of goes away, right? Like, what's the point in trying to fix your bad grade if you already have a bad grade? <laughs> you, know what, you know what I mean? Like, I think I had lost some of that. So I think that shame did kind of creep in there in a serious way but like how do you how do you um correct kind of the only class I was sort of doing well in at all with any semblance of like real connection to the subject matter was English encouraged by her English teacher and her mom Julie applied to a boarding school focused on the arts in northern Michigan she applied for creative writing thinking she'd transfer to a music major and wrote a story for her application the day before it was due. Of all the things I got in with my weird grades and really like spotty record, I got in, I got a a really generous scholarship, and then I found myself in this entirely different world, sort of plucked from this pretty dangerous situation I had gotten myself into and 
dunked into a world of great privilege, but I mean, it completely changed changed my life. People around me who knew they were not only going to college, but going to Ivy League colleges, people whose families were like celebrities. Like it was just beyond anything that I can imagine. And I didn't even fully correct there. I was pretty rebellious at boarding school. I would smoke cigarettes standing on the toilet um, in my dorm through the vent above the toilet. And then I would rub myself with dryer sheets. Like I would sneak out at six in the morning. I drank sometimes. I wasn't like a model student, but I did discover creative writing and really start to see it as something that maybe I had like a knack for from all that childhood reading and also started to see it as like a road out of my past in a sense, like a road out of Michigan and a road into a different kind of future. When we come back from the break, Julie comes across a book that takes her further down that path. Julie Bunton had just started at a boarding school a few hours from her home in northern Michigan, leaving behind her friends and family and most of the trouble she was getting into. But one thing she took with her was her love of reading, and soon she encountered a book that made her think differently about what literature could be. It happened when I went to boarding school in my junior year, and I think if I like really push into the memory that it was a friend of mine from school who was like way more sophisticated than me and much more serious of a literary reader who was reading Laurie Moore's short stories and said, like, read her. And then I read the stories and then I found this novel. That novel was Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? I'm going to say that one more time. Who Will Run the Frog Hospital? Even when I tell people about it sometimes as being a really important book for me, they're like, what's it called? <laughs> like, who will run the what? The book tells the story of Barry, a woman visiting Paris with her husband and looking back on her life and the memories of her childhood, especially the time she spent with her best friend, Sills. It reads almost like a song, kind of. It has the the cadences of a song and the narrative momentum of a song, more so than like your standard novel, I think. I do remember when I first read it, really vividly, like the way that sometimes your surroundings are kind of stamped into the experience of reading a book. And I took it with me at one of those mornings when I woke up at 6 a.m. as soon as the dorms were unlocked and the alarms went off to the beach. And I sat on the picnic table, like overlooking the lake there. And I smoked a cigarette and read this book while the sun was like coming up. And I was like, this is incredible and not like anything I've ever read. And also it's for me, like it's for girls like me. It felt like it was speaking so much to my experience being a girl in the world. So yeah, it was very transformative and also I feel like gave me sort of permission to write and to think about that kind of story as being valid. Julie finished out boarding school and went on to college with the intention of becoming a writer, then went on to get her MFA at NYU. And early on, she saw a familiar book on the syllabus for one of her classes, Lori Moore's who will run the frog hospital? I was really excited. I knew it was on this. I knew it was coming up. We were assigned to read it. And I was like, this is great. We're going to read and talk about one of my favorite books, one of these like formative novels, the novel, one of the novels that makes me want to write novels. So we, I go into the classroom and it's like, a, it's a seminar. It's a small group of like 15 people, probably 
probably half male, half female. I don't think that anybody really had read it before, but but we were given a short story that Laurie Moore published in The New Yorker called Paris, which is essentially extracts from Who Will Run the Frog Hospital, but it's just the adulthood extracts. And my professor, and I started to see where this was going, and I developed, I got like a sinking feeling as the class went on, went on to argue that Paris was the was the real art, like that was the real work, that was the ma- that was the masterpiece, that was the achievement, and that Who Will Run the Frog Hospital was an example of what happens when you try to make a short story that should be just a short story, a novel, and I felt like I had been like sucker punched. It was this argument that all of the things about the book that had been so essential to me, which is basically just the kind of in between moments of girlhood, were just to be cut, left on the cutting table because. I didn't really quite understand why, (laughs) like just because perhaps because my instructor didn't relate to them, perhaps because teenage girls aren't important for literary fiction. Was that the lesson? Like, I'm, I'm not still not sure what the lesson was. I think I realized how important it was to me in the moment when it was challenged, like when it was presented to me as a as a as flawed. I. I went through this, I mean, my eager to please sort of overcorrected from my rebellious teenager, very pretty studious self, wanted to absorb that lesson as fact. But then in processing that and thinking about it later and thinking about it after the class and letting it sit with me and a month later, realizing how almost violating that conversation had felt, um, I think is really when I started to understand that, like, why is this upsetting to me so much? And it's because this is, I feel exactly the opposite about this book. The, the kind of moments of girlhood aren't boring, dead weight on a story. Like, they are the story. Like, the whole point of this book is that that is more poignant and powerful and impactful than adulthood. Like, that's in the, it's in, on the last page. Like, there's this amazing quote. It's not really a spoiler because this isn't that kind of book, but where she says, In all my life as a woman, which began soon after and not unrichly, I have never known such a moment. Just talking about a moment singing with a group of girls as, as a teenager. Like, that's what the book is about. I'm still ashamed that I didn't argue. I just absorbed the lesson. I took it deep inside of me and actually was sort of working on it on Marlena at the time and wound up putting it aside, not as a direct result of that class, though, who really knows? I just wound up putting it aside at that point in grad school to work on something that I thought was like more serious. But as Julie entered the final stretch of graduate school, a visiting professor encouraged her to pick Marlena back up. That visiting professor, Lori Moore. It was two semesters after I was supposed to have graduated, but I'd taken an administrative job for extra money and I was teaching extra classes. So I was kind of like still hanging on in a weird way because I was getting paid. And I had not completed my thesis. And when I found out she was coming, I begged for the opportunity for her to be my thesis advisor. Um, And somehow I got approval and I worked with her. I'm sure I freaked her out the first time we met. Like, I, I, I just basically went into her and probably cried. Like, I think I was like, you are everything to me. But she became, like, very instrumental because I wound up showing her sort of two books. I showed her the serious novel that I worked on most of grad school, which was, like, really obnoxious. It was, like, p- titled Prose Poems. Um, it was bad. And What Would Become Marlena. And I remember her saying, like, this one, the Marlena one, has a plot and 
this other one <laughs> doesn't. So there's really like no question what you should work on. And I completely changed my my thesis plan and wound up writing probably getting maybe 100 pages of Marlena done and then, you know, going on to rewrite it a million times. And it took many years after that for it to actually become anything worth anyone else's time. I don't know if I knew at the time that the book would, that Who Will Run the Frog Hospital would be so significant to me, but it's, when I look back on reading it for the first time, it's charged with so much significance. Like, it's the whole thing. Like, the smoking and the picnic table and the pink sky and the lake. Like, it's so, it's like so clearly, like, this is a moment that will change how you think about the world and empower you to become the person that you, like, it's really big. It feels very big. But... I don't know. I mean, I I would also say that everything felt big to me at that time in my life, even if even if it was big in a bad way or as a teenager everything was big. I felt everything so intensely, like everything mattered. Um even when I was acting like it didn't, I was so I was just like a raw wire all the time. And that's one of the reasons why I love to write about that period of life. It's just so interesting to be so so full of feeling and so like alive to the world and also so wrong about everything. It's just really a fascinating period. If I could go back and talk to 16-year-old Julie, I think I'd probably just tell her like, you're going to be okay. Hey, you're smart. You should probably like try a little harder (laughs) in school. I think I would tell her, you know, I think like you're going to be okay you're going to get out of here you're not going to live in Michigan forever you're going to have a job you're not going to be like it's it's going to be fine you're going to write the book you can write things that you want to write you don't have to spend years like pandering to some idea about what you think people will want from you that might have been a little bit of a shortcut but (laughs) yeah But That's Another Story is produced by Katie Ferguson with editing help from Alyssa Martino and Alex Abnos. Thanks to Julie Button and Sarah Delosier. If you've been enjoying the show, please be sure to rate and review on iTunes. It really helps others discover the program. And subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If there's a book that changed your life, we want to hear about it. Send us an email at anotherstory@macmillan.com. We'll be back with our next episode in two weeks. I'm Will Schwalbe. Thanks so much for listening.